It is good to be home. Uh, last week we uh, were visiting family up in Minnesota, determined to go visit a church in Rochester, Minnesota, because I know the pastor there. Um, thought it would be a safe place for us to go where only the pastor knows us, no one else would know us. By the way, that's really hard for us to do. Um, and it turns out Amanda's cousin was preaching that morning, uh, candidating to be the youth pastor there. So um, we didn't quite get away unnoticed, but we did have an enjoyable time. But I got to tell you, I'll take our smaller congregation here singing that last song over anything a bigger church can do. That was great. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for who you are, that you are the, the one who is in control of all things. It is by your plan and by your word that all things were created. It did not surprise you that Adam and Eve sinned. It did not surprise you that there needed to be some form of salvation designed. In fact, your word tells us that before the foundation of the world, you chose us for salvation. You planned how you would bring about salvation, and that plan was always through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and him alone. There was never a plan B the sacrifices of the Old Testament were never to cover sin fully. They were only to point to the real sacrifice. So we thank you that we live on this side of the cross. We can see with clearer vision your purpose and your plan in salvation. We thank you that, <clears throat> that your wrath was propitiated, was satisfied, was fulfilled through Christ's sacrifice for us. So that we can stand here with confidence today knowing that our sins are forgiven, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done. And because we have responded in faith, believing in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we know that whatever might befall us in this world, Whatever pain or tragedy or agony that we might go through, it's not because you're pouring out your wrath on us. You, you, you wouldn't do that. You couldn't do that because you've already had your wrath satisfied in Jesus Christ. So that means, Father, that there's a, a different purpose in the pains that we go through. Sometimes they are corrective. Sometimes it's discipline where you are trying to put us on the right path because we have strayed from you. But Lord, there are many in our congregation suffering today and has nothing to do with your wrath. It has nothing to do with you being angry at us. It has everything to do with causing us to trust you more. It has everything to do with us longing for that day when all these pains will be removed. 
and everything will be made right. So, Father, we come to you today. And we pray for Rhea. Lord, you could do a miracle. Then we ask for it. And you could give her many, many days. Lord, be honored in every moment that you give her. we know that you love her and that you love us. So we ask for strength for Rhea. We ask for confidence in you for her family, for her church family. There's nothing that you will bring us through that you won't carry us through. David so confidently penned these words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Lord, make your presence known to us this morning. Give us comfort and encouragement. Give us hope. Fathers, we look into your word and we see the sacrifice that Jesus so willingly made for us. Lord, let the truth of your word change us this morning. Let the truth of your word cause us to have the same humility and sacrificial spirit that he had. Because he, he knew the end from the beginning. He knew what it would produce. He knew that it would result in the salvation of souls. Uh, but he still had that pain and that trial to go through before he could get to the blessing. Father, as, as long as you give us breath on this earth, we will face trials. But you will take us through them. So Father, give us an attitude of humility, an attitude of submission to your word, to your way, to your will in our lives so that we might be the people that you want us to be. That we would stand strong on your word. That we would not be distracted by the false theologies that pervade our world. 
theologies on one end that say there is no God. Theologies on the other end that, that show a distorted version of God, one who is vengeful and angry at us all the time. Father, help us to rely on your word and what your word reveals to us today. So Father, visit us, provide for us in this time the, the spiritual nourishment that we need so we can go throughout this week serving you, loving you. In Jesus' name we pray. going to attempt to continue in our series in Philippians, The Mind of Christ. So I invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the the t- series title, The Mind of Christ, comes directly from today's passage. Uh, we've seen so far in the book of Philippians how the gospel is the foundation of who we are as individuals and as the church. It is the gospel that is our foundation for fellowship. In chapter 1, Paul tells the church that he is thankful to God for them. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Because of your partnership or fellowship in the gospel from the day until now. And, And our modern translations have steered away from the word fellowship because we as the church, the church universal as the church has has progressed over these centuries, uh, have, have used the term fellowship in a way that's not helpful. And so they, they use the word partnership in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, because fellowship is the description of that relationship that also includes activity or involvement. So one of my goals with this study in Philippians is to recover the biblical definition of fellowship. All too often, we believers think of fellowship as simply being friendship. That our Christian fellowship is, well, I'm friends with these people that come to the same church as I do. And it's, it's good for us to be friends. We ought to. But fellowship is more akin to camaraderie. The camaraderie of those who have served in the military together who have had their relationships solidified through shared action and experience. The gospel, our living out of the gospel is the foundation of our fellowship, of our relationship as a church. It's also the gospel that is the foundation of our love, as he expressed in chapters 1, verses 8 through 11. And then he spent the rest of the chapter expressing his purpose as grounded in the gospel, that Christ would be made known through his life. Oh, that we would have that purpose as well. That we wouldn't care about any kind of success as measured by the world or even as measured by the church. Let's be honest, the church is not good at measuring success. But that we would desire to be known as a Christ follower. We're now in chapter two. Paul exhorts us to live in harmony with one another as we saw in the first few verses. We, the church, have a mandate to be of the same mind and of the same love, having the same purpose. We, the church, 
are to live selflessly, humbly, while seeking the interests of others in the church. All of this was crescendoing in chapter 2 to get us to where we are today, the example of Christ. His mindset, his humility, his obedience, his sacrifice. In other words, Christ has not called us to something that he has not patterned for us. He's called us to live a life of unity, a life of, of humility and of love and of sacrifice, and he's done all those things for us. A positive way of, put it, positive, positive way of putting it would be this. Jesus is the example of humility for us to follow. And that's our big idea this morning, so read along with me if you would our passage for this morning, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. At least some of this should be familiar as we've been working on memorizing it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, use this passage in our lives today. We need to be challenged to be selfless and humble and sacrificial and obedient because naturally, Lord, we are none of those things. Thank you for our great example, Jesus Christ. Help us to live up to the example that he has set for us. So guide our hearts, guide my words, in Jesus' name, amen. Verses six through 11. Uh, so part of the passage we're looking at today, uh, Lord willing, what we'll look at next week, are a hymn. It's a song that the early church sang. In fact, your Bible may well have these verses indented to indicate that they are poetry. The matter, that these, the matter of these verses being a hymn or a song of some sort is not really in question. What's, uh, what's in question among theologians and people who debate these types of things is, how is this hymn divided up? Should it be six short stanzas or should it be two longer stanzas? Um, is this the complete hymn or is it an excerpt of a larger hymn that, is, uh, that, that Paul has put in here? Uh, and speaking of Paul, did he write these words originally or did the church already know this song at the time that he wrote it? We don't know. What we do know is that the Holy Spirit guided Paul to include these words so they are scripture this is indeed God's word to us that we are to know. So whether Paul penned this hymn or not, uh, it is most certainly God's word. And we're going to handle this hymn in uh, two separate sermons. The first half of the hymn, we see uh, the humble servant. And then in the second half, if you want to read ahead, go ahead. Uh, but God has highly exalted him. He is the exalted servant in the second half of the hymn. In verse five, we are challenged to have the same intent as Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind to employ your thinking thing, to have the same 
purpose, the same planning, the same attitude, the same disposition as Jesus Christ would have. That in itself is plenty, isn't it? To have the mind of Christ is to have our whole being engaged in living the way that Christ lived. Now let's break down the whole verse. Have this mind among yourselves. Interesting. He does not say, have this mind within yourself, or each of you think in this way. He uses the collective terms, among yourselves. Paul is speaking to the church. The church, of course, is people, specifically people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, people who have placed their faith in Christ alone to make them right in God's eyes, to bring them to God. The church is the people who have committed to one another uh, under a common faith, under a common understanding of the word of God, under a common uh, desire to live out the word of God. So there's an authority uh, in play here, the scriptural authority that we are to obey, that we are to follow. The church is a people who have a common goal of being disciples, being followers of God. So when we read, have this mind among yourselves, we understand Paul to be speaking into the context of the church, that we, Grace Baptist Church in Harlan, Iowa, would have this collective understanding, this collective purpose, that we would have the same mindset and attitude and intent. Does that mean that we think the same way about all things? No. That's not the command, that's not the goal, and it's not even realistic, is it? But when it comes to who we are as God's people, we ought to be united in purpose, in mind, in thought, in understanding. When it comes to how we are to operate as God's people, how we are to prioritize things in our lives, we need to have the mind of Christ not the mind of some marketing guru that will give us 10 steps to be a better church, to 10 steps to be a bigger church. Now, if, if some church growth leader can help us understand the scripture better and live it out better so that we grow, praise the Lord. But we're not about gimmicks. We're about following Christ's example. So when we prioritize what we are to be about, that means we're going to deprioritize or even exclude certain things. We might even exclude things that are good things because we have the mind of Christ and we prioritize the things that he wants us to prioritize. Being unified in purpose is not the goal. It's being united in Jesus' purpose. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mindset, this, uh, this purposefulness we have found in Christ Jesus. Once the disciples had even an inkling of understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, 
they were immediately eager for him to do what? Do you remember? They wanted him to overthrow Rome. That's from John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, Truly this is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What did he do? He goes, nope, not happening. Is Jesus being king overall a good purpose? Yes. Is it going to happen one day? Yes. But is that his priority now? No. And it wasn't then either. So he stayed on mission by getting away from the people for a bit. So we as a church, what we prioritize, what we purpose to do must align with what God has commanded us and Christ has exemplified for us. So verse 5 is kind of an introduction to the meat of the song, uh, setting the stage that uh, that we're to be like Christ, and then the rest of the hymn talks about how Christ is that we are supposed to be like. So we have the same intent in verse 6, we have the same attitude. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count being equal with God something to cling tightly to. We are a people who love justice. What could be wrong with that? We want what is right to prevail. We want criminals to be justly punished, right? Even if that criminal is just someone who's going a little faster over the speed limit than you are and he passes you and you're annoyed. We want them to get their just reward, right? We, uh, on the converse, we also want the innocent to be duly rewarded. They've lived a good life. They deserve this. They've done well. They deserve that these are good things right you don't know how to answer do you it's okay <laughs> furthermore we want to be treated rightly don't we if a student goes through college and has done very very well in their classes they should graduate with high honors they should graduate cum laude or magnum magna magnum i didn't write it down or summa cum laude, right? And if a student knows that they have gotten a 4.0 and they deserve to be recognized as having high honors and the guy handing out the diplomas forgets to say that part, they might be a little bit miffed, right? I've earned that! The graduate might feel that the situation is unjust. Jesus is and always has been God. Jesus is and always has been fully God. If he were not God, he could not be our Savior, right? Okay. But all through his earthly life, even though he was at that time still all God, he was mistreated. At best, he was misunderstood. Oftentimes, he was intentionally maligned. Jewish leaders even went so far to say that he was demon-possessed. Do you remember that? If you don't remember that, that's John 8. 
John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? They throw a little racial slur in there too. You're a Samaritan and you're possessed by a demon. Jesus responded, John 8, 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Did you see how that played out? Instead of just doing some phenomenal miracle right in front of him, he could have had lightning strike the ground right in front of him and have a statue appear. He could have done any number of things, right? He's God. He's all God. And what's he do? Instead of defending himself, he says, well, I mean, I'm just honoring the Father. And he wants to glorify me. You're dishonoring me, but he wants to glorify me. Did not Jesus deserve to be honored by those present? Yes, he did. Could he have made them do it? Absolutely. And yet he just responded with his intent. I'm just trying to honor the Father. Wow. Could you or I stand in front of someone who's accusing us of being demon-possessed and not respond with some sort of proof that I'm not? Jesus deserved fully to be honored by those present. It would have been right for them to glorify him and it would have been right if he would have done anything to make them glorify him, but he did none of those things. He did not insist upon holding all the glory and privileges of being with the Father. He did not insist on being rightly glorified, though it was due him. It's one thing to not hang on to the status that you're entitled to. To willingly set that status aside is something more. That's exactly what Jesus did in verse 7. He did not cling to the status that he rightly held, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So in our passage we see we are to have the same intent as Jesus Christ. We are to have the same attitude of just being okay with how people treat us, even when it's unjust. We are to have the same humility in verse 7. That word translated as emptied, but he emptied himself, is that Greek word kenosis. Perhaps you've heard that word before. Pastors like to talk about it, and I'm a pastor, and I like to talk about it. That word kenosis means to completely remove or eliminate elements of high status or rank by eliminating all privileges or prerogatives associated with such status or rank. Did you catch all that? That was a dictionary definition, by the way to completely or remove elements 
of high status or rank by eliminating the privileges or prerogatives associated with such status or rank. And the dictionary also gives us examples to empty oneself or, and I think we would understand this, this word, to divest oneself. We know what invest is when you put your effort, your energy, your money into something. To divest is to remove yourself from it. Remove your money from that account. Remove your energy from that activity. Jesus emptied himself. He divested himself of all the privileges associated with the status of him being God. Well, how did he do that? What does that mean? Well, the verse tells us says, but emptied himself, how? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In verse six, we saw how Jesus is fully God. In verse seven, we see Jesus is fully man. He is both. The Hebrew culture has never bothered itself with gray areas, and it might help us if we did the same, but that's not where we live. In the Hebrew culture, you either absolutely love something or you absolutely detest it. There is nothing in between. It's all black or white. It is all for it or all against it. And the New Testament, though written in the Greek language, we see the Hebrew culture shining through and it's found right here as well. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word servant is the Greek word for slave. We have the sovereign of the universe, eternally God for all time, has divested himself and become a slave. Do you see the opposite there? The highest to the lowest. From the splendor of glory to being the slave of mankind. The one who spoke and light became is the one who became a helpless infant cradled in Mary's arms. The one who by his word created the universe and all things in it has humbled himself to be killed by the mankind that he created. The Lord of all creation voluntarily became the least of all mankind, becoming not just a slave, but the slave, the worst of the worst, as we'll see in the next verse. But before we get there, Jesus is fully man and that same humility expressed by Jesus in setting aside his status is the same humility that you and I are to live. Never caring to be seen by others in, a, in any positive light. If, if someone thinks negative of me, I just, I'm not allowed to care. Caring only that God be glorified in ourselves. Can we do that? Can we really not care what anyone else thinks and only care what God thinks of us? That's our calling, because that's what Jesus did. 
Jesus' selflessness was not just his mindset. He demonstrated it by being our sacrifice, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So to be like Christ is to have the same mind or that same intent, to have the same attitude, the same humility, not needing to be seen as something, not needing to be glorified, being okay with being maligned. And in verse 8, we're to have the same sacrifice. Tell me, what did Jesus hold back in his sacrifice? Nothing, right? The eternal God the Son, Jesus, died not for his sins, but for ours. You know, Paul's word choice is always precise. It says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. That word is not a word that's just slid in there to make a sentence whole. It's in there because Jesus obeyed the Father. Jesus, God the Son, always obeys God the Father, even when obedience meant untold pain and agony. That physical pain, that spiritual agony. That was his death on the cross. The cross, as you know, is a brutal form of execution. In our modern day, some of the states have stopped executing their worst criminals, not because they fear that some of their criminals have been falsely accused, although that is a possibility, isn't it? And they haven't stopped capital punishment because they had some sort of change of philosophy, although some states have had a change of philosophy. Some of the states stopped executing their worst criminals because their methods of execution were too slow and too inhumane. I'm pretty sure the Roman government in Jesus' day would look at us and just laugh. Because when they executed someone, it was designed to be slow. It was designed to cause the most amount of pain possible while keeping the person just alive enough to endure. And not only was it uh, to be painful, it was to be public. When we execute someone, there are very few witnesses. It's not a public spectacle. But not Jesus' crucifixion. In fact, the Roman crucifixion would, would take many hours and sometimes even days. That's why they went and broke the, the legs of the, the two criminals beside Jesus because the, the Jewish leaders came up and said, you know, we've got this celebration going on. We don't really want this spectacle going on any longer than you have to. Can you get it done by sundown? And they came to Jesus and they didn't have to break his legs because he had already died. It was designed to be slow. It was designed to be humiliating. Oftentimes happening along well-traveled thoroughfares so that the public could view and be afraid. Jesus humbled himself in obedience to be crucified. We kind of get the physical pain aspect 
that none of that sounds comfortable, to say the least. It sounds agonizing. What I'm not sure we get is the spiritual agony that accompanied it. Jesus became sin for us. Awana's starting up soon, and I'm glad for it. It's a nice ongoing thing that allows us to invest in, in children, invest in students. It serves a good purpose that way. One of the verses that they will memorize, perhaps not in the translation I'm going to read from, but this verse is, they're going to memorize is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin so that we by faith become righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not so that we might have eternal life in heaven, although that's part of it, not that we might have eternal life where we experience no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more loss, and that's part of it. No, he died the righteous for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. He sacrificed for us. And by his example, we then can sacrifice in obedience to God the Father as well. I guarantee you that any sacrifice that God is leading you into is less than the sacrifice that he led the son into. The sacrifice he calls you to might be a great pain. It might cover a long amount of time, but it will never, it will never be the weight of sin. God will never call you to a pain like he called his son. How might God lead you to sacrifice? I don't know. The ways are endless. It could be financial, living with far less than the American ideal because you sacrifice that money for the Lord. It could be financial. It could be family. Parents of missionaries know this well. I don't see Bill and Sandy. You could ask them. As they've sent their children to the mission field and their grandchildren. I'm sure they understand the term bittersweet better than the rest of us do. Could be physical pain, it could, whatever. The ways that God may lead us into sacrifice are many and varied. The way God called Jesus the Son of God, to sacrifice, he obediently complied. Not once complaining, 
and he knew what was coming. He knew the details. Being God, he knew everything. He knew exactly how hard it was going to be, and he still didn't complain. Jesus is our example of humility. Our call today is to be like Jesus in his intent, his attitude, his humility, his sacrifice. I know that sounds like a lot. It may be easy to rattle off those four words, but it really is a huge calling. Don't worry if that sounds like too much. It is too much to work on all at once, okay? But here's what's coming up in the book of Philippians. We're going to see the exaltation of Jesus in the next passage. And then Paul is going to give, it, give the church, so give us, direct instruction on ways that we can be like Jesus. So if you're wondering, how can I possibly live this out? Just read ahead. It's there. And then Paul is going to give us examples through Timothy and Epaphroditus and even his own life of how uh, real Men of God are living humble, sacrificial lives, and we can too. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to be like Jesus, who willingly gave up the glories of heaven and was more than satisfied to live in the squalor of earth, how he humbled himself, becoming a, the slave to mankind so that we might have life. By being obedient to sacrifice as you had commanded. Lord, adjust our thinking so that we might think the way Christ thinks, putting Others first, putting you first. Help us to have the same humility and attitude that Jesus had, not caring what people thought of him, but caring what you thought. Lord, give us the strength to be obedient when you call us into sacrifice as well. It wouldn't be sacrifice if it didn't hurt in some way. So we know from the offset that, that being called into sacrifice is, is going to be hard. Help us to live for you. Father, thank you for Jesus, his example to us, and the way that he has provided so that we might live for you. Help us to grow in our attitude and purposes that we might live for you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.